The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. So what do you do on the 4th of July when everyone is busy doing something else with their time? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. One of the benefits of being an IANS member is a little quarterly publication called Vital Signs, which runs a column of mine called Out of My Tree. It's about NDEs, but it's about lots of other things, too. And I thought for this 4th of July show, I'd read some of that writing to you. And you can let me know what you think. I'll concentrate on uh, last year's columns. This one was um, headed Strawberry Fields Forever. A reader recently sent a letter to the editor critical of authors who term near-death experiences as proof of heaven or God. Now, I had just been to see Love, the amazing Cirque du Soleil Las Vegas performance based on music of the Beatles and uh, the Lennon childhood memory of Strawberry Field. Turning into the song named Above, that's featured importantly in the show. The line from that song, Nobody I Think Is In My Tree, resonates with me, of course, given the name of this column, Out of My Tree. Are there elements in the song that could shed light on the reader's complaint? He argues that proof is a term specifically owned by the scientific method of investigation and cannot be applied to unique experiences since the property of proving something is the ability to replicate the event. Replication would entail a situation somewhat akin to the fictional movie Flatliners, in which medical students inflict near-death experiences on themselves to understand the nature of the afterlife. Yet, even under such circumstances, it could be argued the visions each fictional NDE or experienced were so personally psychological that it was a product of the dying brain. And um, in Peren, I noted that story's premise, by the way, indicated that guilt in the form of spirits can return to life with the end ear to provoke the need for forgiveness. Uh, sub-theme of the movie. In fact, out-of-body experiences, OBEs, can be and are replicated every day. People are taking courses to learn how to do it. And government spy agencies around the world have been using OBEs as a tool in their operations for years. The U.S. government claims not to have a branch engaged in OBE spying these days, as the movie uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats described. But professional OBEers admit our government contracts with the private sector now for remote viewing spy services. And then I take a line from the from Strawberry Fields. That is, you know, you can't tune in, but it's all right. That is, it's not too bad. The problem, as I see it, is not that OBEs can't be proved, but that actually nothing can be proved to everyone's satisfaction, since our bases of assumptions are mounted on shifting ground. This is nothing new, of course. Ptolemy worked out a mathematical proof that the sun and planets revolved around the Earth. When direct observation by telescope proved that the Earth was not the center of things, the beginnings of the Enlightenment fell into place. Interestingly, today there is a scientific theory being discussed that the Earth might actually be located at the center of the universe, restoring a bit of our tarnished image. 
and from strawberry fields. But you know, I know, and it's a dream. I think I know of the, uh, yes, but it's all wrong. That is, I think I disagree. The problem is proof gets ignored where it's not welcome, not politically correct. Take the question of UFOs, or ghosts for that matter, where millions of credible sightings and interactions have been recorded over the centuries. But mainstream science won't give those observations the time of day for fear of being considered squirrely. Yet with only math to prove their notions, quantum researchers can bravely propose similar feats in different language, like the possible existence of multiple universes. Are these perhaps the very places those silly ghosts and UFOs call home? I believe the quandary we're in goes back to the old unresolved argument. Are we spiritual beings occupying temporary physical bodies, or are we physical beings who philosophize a spiritual reality to quell our fear of death? Atheists are pleased that the word lie dwells in the middle of the word believe, as if the coincidence somewhat mystically makes their point that it doesn't manifest in our three-dimensional physical existence. If it doesn't manifest in our three-dimensional physical existence, then it isn't real. As easily, it could be argued that lie is encapsulated and negated by the power of belief. Buddhists and the Matrix movies argue that this life is a fantasy, a lie, the spiritual reality is feeding us for as yet no fully understood reason. Living is easy with eyes closed, misunderstanding all you see. Mainstream religions have tried and for the most part failed to reconcile our physical life with the spiritual one. So until we can agree on the underlying basis of existence, we won't have our gauges synchronized for proving anything. Science, in quotes, will prove according to its understanding, while spirit, in quotes, will prove according to its very different perception of reality. Weirdly enough, the only indication a rapprochement exists anywhere is in the halls of the rich and powerful, that is, within powerful corporations, by agencies, and the military. It's been within organizations like the CIA, the NSA, the Pentagon, and their equivalents in China and Russia, that experiments with LSD and other hallucinogens, OBE training and remote viewing, and even possible contacts with aliens are believed by many to be well-advanced. Ask them and they'll deny it, of course. What a crazy idea. That stuff's not real. Strawberry fields, nothing is real. And nothing to get hung about. Strawberry fields forever. We who are exploring reports of near-death visions delight in what are called veridical experiences. NDEs where the experiencer can report observations they couldn't possibly have known about since their body lay dead or incapacitated at the time of the observation. We cling to stories like the sneaker on the hospital window ledge, but don't pay much attention to meditating Buddhist monks or OBE adepts who can bring us veridical evidence any day of the week. And mainstream science won't acknowledge this reality until they absolutely have to, because unless it involves a classified government contract, it's not on their agenda and not even on their radar. It would throw too many monkey wrenches into the matrix reality they have us heavily subscribed to. Proof has happened when people believe. 
And that's all it means. It's temporary and full of flaws. Nothing to get hung about. Strawberry fields forever. That was the, um, I believe that was the spring issue of Vital Signs. Let's turn to the next one in, in the order of things. <clears throat> this would have been the summer issue, I believe. God's Love, God's Judgment, it was titled. For as long as I can remember, I have struggled with the notions, first learned in Sunday school, no doubt, that we humans were awash in sin and subject to God's possibly condemning us to punishment when we die. Confounding this was the notion believed by Christians of most stripes that, quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, unquote, to suffer in our place for our sins. And all we had to do was acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Of course, the rest of humanity remained subject to God's wrath when they died, which hardly seemed fair. My thoughts then evolved to the belief that Jesus died for all humanity, whether they knew to acknowledge it or not. After all, if you're a child raised in the slums of Cairo, how the heck would you know the story of Jesus? And anyway, if it takes acknowledging Jesus as Lord, that's something we would have to do or would do only through the selective grace of the Holy Spirit. And the theory was we didn't have to do anything since God so loved the world that Jesus had done everything necessary for our salvation. Which would mean, technically speaking, that what we did, good or bad, in this life, wouldn't matter to our salvation since we aren't capable of earning the joys of heaven on our own. Rather, Jesus has accomplished our salvation no matter what stains our soul has accumulated. The Russian monk Rasputin, for example, believed and lived his life, reflecting that the more we sinned, the more God's grace would abound. So those whose sin the most, so those who sin the most, uh, gain the greatest share of God's forgiving love. For me, this did not compute. Even taking the mystery of God, whatever that means, into account. Today's new age thinking has actually evolved from this 19th century universalism to say that we are all forgiven equally from those who hate and hurt the most to those who love and help the most. We are all welcomed into the light by an all-forgiving God. And yes, that washes our sins away, but also means our good deeds gain no further, no greater a share of God's love, no crown in heaven as my Sunday school teacher taught, or perpetual virgins as Muslims believe. Then last night I had a dream that suggested some possible answers based on the notion that love and judgment are cooperatively worked out between God and each one of us, and that this evolution has been going on since long before Christ entered this four-dimensional world of time. To consider this notion, let's start with the early report of Ur's near-death experience as described in Plato's Republic. Ur awakens from his NDE to describe how he and his comrades came to a beautiful field, about as far as most NDEers go, and then came to a place of judgment, where the good went to heavenly pleasures, the bad to a place of punishment, for tenfold the time their deeds on earth until their karmas were fulfilled. Then both the formerly good and bad met again in the field, shared their experiences thus far in the afterlife, and then went on to forgetfulness and reincarnation to start the whole process again. 
Flash forward half a millennium and Jesus comes to change the procedure. The slaughter of innocent lambs and doves at the temple altar for the forgiveness of sins is effectively ended by the final sacrifice, the death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of all humankind. The Christian prayer of belief even states that Jesus descended into hell after his death to lead those souls waiting there into the light. All this takes our fate out of our hands, even more so than Rasputin believed. Neither our love will gain us a bit more of God's love for us. Hitler or Mother Teresa, he loves us all the same. But if that's the case, then what is the meaning of free will? If there are no consequences to our actions, to the suffering we inflict on others, then what is the suffering in this world all about? And is there any meaning to the notion of justice against those whose ca- who cause the sufferings of others? Near-death experiencers speak of a life review where we experience the hurt and pain we afflict- inflicted on others. But it only seems to last a little while. But what if the degree and length of that life review pain is only to demonstrate to the NDE what awaits us at the time we die for real? In other words... Since we only get a brief taste of the light and love of God in an NDE, could it likewise be an equally brief taste of the justice that awaits us as well? Plato tells it that way, with suffering lasting ten times longer than the sufferings we caused. Fortunately, in this scenario, nothing lasts forever, unlike what the Catholic Church and Dante would have us believe. The thing is, unless you believe this creation is all a matrix world, fantasy island floating in space without consequences, then the sins we commit against the creation and against one another will resonate down through the generations beyond our children's children until we ourselves get reincarnated into a world we help to make of sick, starving, and brutal in the absence of love and compassion. In the beginning, the world conceived of God as a God of justice. Jesus, through his sacrifice, turned that God of justice to a God of love. But as we choose to forget Jesus, will that understanding and protection revert to a God of justice once again? Jesus taught God to forgive. By forgetting that gift, we are teaching God to punish us once again. That was from the Summer Vital Signs column out of my tree. In the fall, I wrote a fairly long one on the fundamentalist attack on NDEs. As a hospital chaplain, I hardly ever know what will happen next to make my day. For example, a year ago, I was pleasantly surprised to see a two-color folder turn up on my desk that had the look and feel of a fundamentalist tract, but with a surprising twist. It was promoting faith as the result of a vision the writer had, a vision, a visit from his mother's deceased sister who came as, quote, an angel-like messenger, unquote, at the moment of his mother's death. The tract was titled, The Good News, A Miracle During a Death, and it was certainly not the most amazing vision story I'd ever encountered. Believe me, the number of near-death, out-of-body, and visionary experiences you get told as a chaplain sympathetic to such stories is remarkable. And of course, it wasn't the first fundamental Christian tract I'd received. 
Just walk around any state fair in the summer and you'll probably be approached a dozen times by Christians anxious to save your soul. What was so amazing about this tract was that it referenced a personal mystical experience as proof of heaven and the afterlife. The writer went on to say, I was also shown that when you die, someone who has passed away in your family comes to take you to be with Jesus. Instead of being sad, I was very happy, for she actually filled my mind with more wonderful visions of how great heaven really is, the glorious eternal paradise God intended for us from the beginning. Well, I took this little tract to be a sign the tide was turning and that personal mystical experience had at last made it to the fundamentalist table as added evidence of God's love. After all, for years, centuries, many denominations have felt incredibly threatened by the notion that spiritual revelation did not end with what the Bible has to say. According to these Christian churches, the Bible contains the whole truth, and your denomination's rules, priests, or pastors provide the only key to what its content really means. This is ironic, of course, since historically the Catholic Church did not want the Bible in the hands of ordinary people for fear it would undermine church authority. The English scholar William Tyndale was convicted of heresy and in 1536 was strangled and then burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Yet it is estimated that most of the content of the highly cherished King James Version was based on Tyndale's work. Post-Bible, of course, many would-be prophets have claimed religious leadership because of personal mystical experience, and some have founded religions as a result. Muhammad claimed visions in the 7th century, and Islam was the result. Joseph Smith claimed visions in the 19th century, and Mormonism was the result. Catholics and Eastern Orthodox sects strengthen the faithful by agreeing visions and Marian apparitions have occurred for a few chosen saints, but most often such experiences are allowed to be called, quote, from God, unquote, only by their proximity to established dogma. Today, it appears, my hope born of that little tract is again under attack, as Christian fundamentalists seem to be fighting to drag us back to a, quote, Bible is the only truth, unquote, way of thinking, I was alerted to how powerful this reaction has become by a conversation with PMH Atwater and then and then further details from her March 2015 e-newsletter in which PMH wrote, quote, it's not enough that Islam seems no longer to be the religion of peace and forgiveness. Now the fundamentalist wing of the Christian religion has followed suit. Because of the great success of the book and movie Heaven is for Real, and the subsequent recanting of Alex Malarkey's childhood near-death experience, and I inserted here possibly a consequence of a family battle over the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, and insert. The religious right has banned any future book that speaks or talks about heaven, saying that all anyone needs to know about heaven can be gleaned from the Bible. They have also told all Christian book publishers to cease any such publication, NDE books are out, exclamation point. Now here's the thing. How do these folks think the Bible came to be, if not from what people have agreed is God-given revelation? 
God may have personally inscribed the original stones with his Ten Commandments for Moses, but everything else has been written down by human beings and then edited and redacted by other human beings. Some texts were accepted and others rejected by early church fathers stitching together a Bible now called the Word of God. Early on, Christian beliefs were all over the place with Jewish, Greek, and Gnostic influences and contention. Some visionary writings that were excluded by 4th century church fathers include the Book of Enoch, a popular sacred text in Jesus' day. Rejected by the Western church, it was nevertheless retained in the Ethiopian Bible and describes visions of heaven that could have come from OBEs or NDEs. The book of Isaiah was authored by several hands, and at least one of Paul's letters was probably not written by Paul. The Catholic Encyclopedia, as quoted in Wikipedia's notes, the, the idea of a complete and clear-cut canon of the New Testament existing from the beginning, that is, from apostolic times, has no foundation in history. The canon of the New Testament, like that of the Old, is the result of a development of a process at once stimulated by disputes with doubters, both within and without the church, and retarded by certain obscurities and natural hesitations, which did not reach its final term until the dogmatic definition of the Tridentine um, Council in the 16th century. In other words, from the time of Jesus <laughs> to the solidification of the Bible text, 1,600 years. Believers ask, does it matter who edited it if God has guided the making of the book? But how did God do the editing or the guiding? Um if not through dreams, visions, automatic writing, NDEs and OBEs, and all the communication links we have with the other side, even to this day. Paul understood the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection and delineated the theology of Christian faith after he experienced an NDE. If it hadn't been for Paul's understanding, Christianity would never have grown to the worldwide faith it is today. So who are these religions to say that personal mystical experience came to an end with the church father's version of the Bible. If God guided the writings of the Bible, then why wouldn't he be gifting the end ears and visionaries of today with similar assurances of his love? There is an existential problem confronting us now that apparently can't be overcome by denominational debate. Does God really intend to deny heaven to non-Christians? Is his plan really to waste most of humanity? Churches are structured and gain their influence, power, and wealth on the claim that their form of worship is the right one, and everyone else falls short of God's love. In other words, you'd better stay a Catholic or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Scientologist or whatever, or your chances of being eternally wrong loom over you. This self-assumed exclusivity is, in fact, a stumbling block holding back God's love and our love for one another in the world. Raise questions about the salvation of non-Christians to Christians, or the salvation of non-Muslims to Muslims, or the possibilities of reincarnation to Christians, or the breaking of rules and regulations within any particular faith or denomination. And religions can turn quite ugly on the subject. Thank you very much. Not understanding that God loves all of us, or not recognizing that Jesus came to save Christians and non-Christians alike, leaves the factional stances of churches and synagogues 
mosques and temples, a little lower than universally available personal mystical experience. After all, what could possibly teach us more powerfully than our own experience that God's love is available to us all? All we need do is comprehend the fact, as did the writer of that tract that appeared on my desk. What route we follow is up to our own hearts, but all good roads lead us home. Well, we're running short of time, but let me see if I can squeeze one more column from out of my tree. This was a follow-up. It says more on religion as a title. As you probably know, I host a weekly Internet radio show on behalf of IONS. You can find it at nderadio.org, where all the past programs are archived for you to listen. The other day I received an email from a listener who was bothered that a guest on a recent program had mentioned the website for her particular form of worship. The listener pointed out correctly that IONS does not endorse any specific religion, faith, or denomination, and therefore I should have my guest's reference to her religion's website deleted from the archived show. Instead of that, I thought I'd reflect some more on what religion is all about. Tangentially, the last issue of Vital Signs Out of My Tree was dedicated to how disappointing it was that some fundamental Christian churches were on the attack against near-death experiences and on the growing number of NDEs being um, evidenced, uh, no, being reported in books, movies, and on TV. These churches may realize that NDE evidence is strengthened, has strengthened the notion of an afterlife based on forgiveness and love, but balk at the universality of the message. NDEs imply all of us, regardless of our faith tradition, can have a direct experience of the afterlife. And based on that alone, we can accept the challenge of being channels for God's love in a world desperately in need. I would like to think that everyone is entitled to at least one personal mystical experience in their life, be it an NDE, an OBE, a message, or a visit from the other side, a vision, a miraculous healing, a powerful premonition, or whatever. But when that happens, what do we do with our gift? We are told not to hide our our light under a bushel. Many decide they want to write a book, but with an estimated 774 NDEs happening every day in this country alone, we're talking about generating far more reading matter than anyone could tackle. And here we begin to see the usefulness of having the wide range of faiths we are offered in this country. Events like NDEs are gifts to be shared. And after family and friends are either amused or amazed by what you have described, I suggest you take it to your church, synagogue, or mosque as an offering to be shared with the congregation. You may hear objections, but more often than not, you'll hear of similar events that may have happened to the person sitting next to you, something they might never have told anyone but for the fact that you are brave enough to share your experience with them. This can be one of the good aspects of religion along with communal prayer, praise, music, sacred text education, and sharing with the poor, there should be a communal willingness toward compassionate listening. And never mind there is so much diversity in how we worship. Compassion can arise through evangelical emotion, orthodox ritual, meditational silence, continual chanting, spiritualism, or any combination of the above. We should all find the form of worship that best works for us, and the congregation we feel most at home with. And one great test for whether we've found home is the reaction we get when sharing the details of our NDE. 
Speaking of possible narrow-mindedness, a cult is a term used loosely these days by people attacking others' religions. So when when is a religion a cult? The American Heritage Dictionary's first definition of cult is, quote, a system of community of religious worship and ritual, especially when focusing upon a single deity or spirit. By that definition, nearly all monotheistic religions could be called cults. The second definition offered is obsessive devotion or veneration for a person, principle, or ideal or the object of such devotion. This gets close to what makes outsiders nervous. The key here is how we parse the word obsessive. There are many clues to determining cult status, including exorbitant demands for donations or setting the group's leader on a high pedestal. But the most telling, in my opinion, is any religion that insists salvation can only be obtained by joining their group and that all outsiders are doomed. Beware faith leaders who claim to be nestled in God's lap on the judgment seat. Some folks would like to do away with religion altogether, but remember, don't toss out the baby with the bathwater. Religion's most important job is to remind each generation there's a greater reality than the matrix world we live in. Without religion's emphasis on God's love and the eternal soul, the materialist could impose an agenda far more corrosive than simple pragmatism. If the near-death experience teaches anything, it's that God's love is universally available even to those who have walked through distressing NDEs. From my point of view, spirit's love flies down to all religions, but like the geese in the children's nursery rhyme go, one flew east, one flew west, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Well, I think we're just about out of time for today. Uh, I wish you a happy 4th of July, and... Um, Remind you that if you've had a near-death experience, I would urge you to write up the details and submit it to the IANS office at IANDS.org. There it will be archived for further research without your name being used, if you so wish. And of course, we are always interested in hearing your story on the air as well. Drop me an email if you've had an NDE you'd like to discuss on the show. And if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at NDERadio.org. For more information about the work of IONS and our upcoming conference in Orlando, Florida in July, check out that website, IANDS.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>